We'll take your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
We're in our series, We Preach Christ. That's why you hear the song every service on Sunday mornings. And uh, it's the theme of our series this uh, month, and certainly uh, thankful for it. Uh, we Preach Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul, of course, is speaking to the church at Corinth. And he says there, beginning in verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of, uh, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that again you'd meet with us today. We are in desperate need of your love, your grace, and your mercy. We ask that you would just speak to hearts, that you would put in the hearts and minds of those that are gathered today and even those that are listening via the live stream. You'd put in their heart a need to draw nigh to you. If they don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, may they recognize the need today to ask forgiveness for their sin and to seek you in their life, to invite you into their life. We desperately need you today. We pray that you'd walk these aisles and do a work in our hearts and our lives. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm jealous. I don't appreciate that he'll be preaching Monday night, so I just kicked him off the platform. <laughs> the Bible says here, the Apostle Paul, he says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Boy, the Jews did. They found the cross to be a stumbling block. They would have accepted a Savior, of course, that would have delivered them from the oppression of Rome. But no, this... This Savior, this one who came, supposedly, he, he came to, to submit himself. They, they wanted a lion, but he came a lamb, and he allowed himself to hang on a cross. And, well, a crucified Christ, that meant a defeat, not victory to them. The Greeks, of course, or the Gentiles, they believed the cross was mere foolishness. They considered it utter ridiculousness. I mean, they thought to themselves, the idea that a cross was the answer, that it was the answer, that, that to them that was just utter, that was ridiculous, that was just crazy, that didn't make any sense to them at all. It didn't, it didn't make sense in a rational mindset. I mean, who in the world would say uh, the Savior's going to hang on a cross? That makes no sense at all. You're allowed to sit up here if you like, brother, but you don't have to. I've repented. <laughs> Everyone has to bear their cross. <laughs> so, so, as offensive as the cross was, to the Jew, 
to the Greek or the Gentile? The Apostle Paul says, you know what? I unashamedly and I boldly proclaim Christ. We preach Christ, he said. Man, the world may say it's a joke. The world may say it doesn't matter, but it does matter. And we preach Jesus Christ. He unapologetically says, we preach Christ. And I'm excited. I'm glad he did. He understood that Christ was and is the only answer to mankind's predicament. And we say, well, who is that Christ? And we noted that Christ is both God and Creator. A few weeks ago, we addressed that. We talked about it. We note the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. And we'd have no debate today if I said, do you believe that God created the universe? Do you believe that God created all things? Most of us in this room would say emphatically, yes. But may I say that you can't fully comprehend nor understand the Creator until you go to Colossians chapter 1. And there in Colossians chapter 1, while speaking of Christ, it says, For by Him, the Lord Jesus, mind you, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. What we learned was that Jesus Christ is God but we also learn that He is Creator. He's God and Creator. And as God and Creator, we noted that in Psalm chapter 113, verses 5 and 6, basically, that a wonderful question is asked and that there's a wonderful truth, a very powerful truth that is presented. It says, Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? We learn that this God that we now serve, this God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is so high, so uplifted, so above and beyond us that he has to literally humble himself or bow down in order to even look upon heaven and earth itself. He's that high. We learn that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's so beyond us. Christ is God and creator. And then last week, we noted that he is the sustainer. Christ the sustainer. In Nehemiah 9.21, we use this as our springboard, but it says, Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. We learned that the Lord supernaturally provided for the people of God in the wilderness. That for forty years there, He provided them water and food to eat. For forty years, He ensured that they had clothes and shoes on their feet. He ensured them that He would care for them, and He met their every need. He sustained them in the wilderness, and we learned that he will also take care of us today. It says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So Christ is the creator, and he is the sustainer. Today I want to address this thought, though, because we're talking about the idea that we preach Christ. Well, who are we preaching? We're preaching about the creator. We're preaching about the sustainer. We are preaching about the Savior. The Savior. It was 6,000 years ago, and God created man. So I think it was longer than that. That's all right. You believe whatever you want, as long as you believe he created it. Be careful now. This idea that, you know, theistic evolution and all this mess. Listen, we don't need to buy into the world's philosophy or ideas about creation. We need to simply believe the Bible. The Bible teaches that in six literal days, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, created all things. 
And I believe that it was literally within about 6,000 years ago. Some say 10,000. Others would say, well, it was many, many more years than that. A day equals an eon of time. A day equals an age. A day equals, you know what a day equals? The morning and the evening were the first day. Morning and evening were the second day. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible says. I just believe it. And God there placed a man. And he saw that man, Adam, in the garden, and he recognized that Adam was lonely in that garden. And as a result of that, although there were animals there, and who knows, maybe those animals even spoke. We know that the serpent did. But what we do know for sure is that, we, that Adam did not find a help meet, that Adam didn't have somebody that could be a companion, that Adam was lonely, and God put him to sleep, caused a deep sleep to come upon him, and there he removed a rib, and he created woman. Boy, there they basked in that blissful place, a perfect place, so it seemed, every need being met. And then old slewfoot Satan came along, began to tempt Eve, and we know how it ended. Both Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they disobey God. They rebel against the Creator the very God that they fellowshiped with in the garden, the very God that placed them in the garden, the very God that met their every need, they disobeyed. And from that point on, they lost their innocence and sin reigned within them. But you know, interestingly enough and wonderfully enough, the Lord sought them out. The Bible teaches us that He went before them, that He sought them out. Now, he would punish each party involved, and he would offer hope to all of us. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, look there, would you please? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We see a prophecy, and this prophecy will point to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As God begins to express the punishment that would be to each, he starts with Satan and he makes the statement along the way. He says, and I will put, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. See, God had rested from his creative work. And now, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, he begins his redemptive work. And he, re he begins it with a promise. And that promise is simply this, that I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Who's he talking about? Who's the promise? The Lord Jesus Christ is. The promises of a Savior that would one day come and ultimately crush the head of Satan. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary concerning this particular passage wrote, when God went into that garden looking for man, he said, where art thou? Any anthology of religion tells the story of man's search for God. He says, but my friend, that is not the way God tells it. Let's tell it like it is. Salvation is God's search for man. He says, man runs away from him and God calls to him, where art thou? 
Dr. W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his book, Genesis, a devotional commentary, he makes the comment that it is the call of divine justice which cannot overlook sin. It is the call of divine sorrow which grieves over the sinner. It is the call of divine love which offers redemption for sin. And we have all of that in the verse before us. The promise of a coming Savior. And this prophecy would kick off a long list of prophecies that would continue throughout the Word of God. Prophecies that would point to Jesus Christ Himself and ultimately His triumph over Satan. Boy, God loved us so much that He provided us an escape from sin and it provided us an escape from Satan, and that escape is Christ the Savior. So throughout the Scriptures, we're given picture after picture of Christ. The Jesus Christ who would come. First, we see the Lamb, and there's a number of them in the Scripture, but let me point out just a few. We see the Lamb. Turn, if you would, over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 7 to start with. You remember the situation. We know that Israel is bound in Egypt, that they are slaves to the Egyptians, and for 430 years they are bound there. They cry out to God, and God sends them a deliverer. That deliverer's name was Moses. We know that God ultimately delivered them, but it was Moses he used as a tool in his hand. And here we now have this tenth and final plague that would plague all of Egypt and even affect the Israelites. Notice the destroyer is going to come. The firstborn will be destroyed. It will be the final of a series of plagues that will ultimately turn Pharaoh's heart and send the people of God free into the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, the Bible says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, ye shall take it from, out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Notice verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token unto the houses which ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt." We notice once again that in this passage that destroyer's coming through the land and he is going to take the life of the firstborn. And the Bible says that they were to choose out a lamb and that lamb was to be without blemish. That lamb would be slain on the 14th day and his blood would be applied upon the doorpost and the lentils. And the Bible tells us that as the destroyer passes by, he will see the blood and he will pass over them. That lamb is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ who hung on a cross 2,000 years ago, who hung on a cross and shed His perfect, precious blood for you and I. And when He sees the blood, 
he'll pass over you. We too are slaves to sin and we are slaves to Satan. And he says, I want to bring deliverance to you. I want you to be free to serve me. So I provide you a perfect, spotless lamb, my son, Jesus Christ. You apply the blood to your life today and I'll pass over you. I'll not judge your sin because it will have been judged on Calvary. And you will be free to serve me as my child, being part of the family of God. What a beautiful picture. John the Baptist, he says in John 1.29, as he looks over the terrain, he sees that next day, the Bible says, he seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, the Bible says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I don't think there can be any doubt that that lamb in the Old Testament that ultimately provided the blood for those Egyptians and spared them the destroyer is the picture, a perfect picture of Jesus Christ whose blood, the Bible tells us, is without blemish and without spot. Christ the Savior. We see another picture. Turn to Numbers chapter 21, please. Numbers chapter 21. I want you to begin in verse 4. Start there. We'll read through verse 9. Again, multiple pictures of the Savior. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged by because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, for our soul loatheth this light bread. What was the light bread? The light bread was the manna that God had been providing. We're not happy with what God has given us. We want more. Sound familiar in our lives? Well, I tell you what, let's be honest. As easy as it is to get a little upset with these, uh, Egyptian, or these uh, Israelites out in the wilderness, I think we could even agree that maybe we get like them sometimes. Well, watch what happens now in verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. I'm just going to throw this in, but how easy is it to hold a grudge against someone that hurt you or wished evil upon us? And yet Moses was willing to pray for the people, even though they had sought many times to stone him, to kill him, and to blame him for everything that was going wrong. Wow, what a humble man he was. What, what a man. Verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, 
And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. I mean, the, the passage is, again, a people that are discouraged, a people that are downtrodden, a people that are, are worried about their future and about the health of their own children, maybe. They're concerned because the needs aren't met the way they believe they should be met. And then they begin to rail on Moses and rail on God. And pretty soon God says, okay, let's get your attention now and help you to understand that this is not the way to go. And here come the serpents. They bite the people. The people begin to die. And they cry out to Moses, oh, Moses, we have sinned against God and we have sinned against you. Please pray. Please pray that he'll remove these serpents. Instead, God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a pole. And I'm going to tell you to put a brass serpent at the top of it. And that brass equals judgment. Man, I mean to tell you, and we know, we know that Satan's already been judged. But we also know that Jesus Christ took sin in his own body on the tree. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there on that cross, Jesus Christ, a sinner at that point, took your sin, mine. He became sin for us. He himself obviously wasn't a sinner, but he bore your sin and he bore mine. And it's pictured in that brazen serpent. And every time the Bible says that they looked upon the serpent they lived, Every time they cast their eyes up and they looked up and saw the serpent, they were made afresh and made anew. But I'll tell you what. The Bible tells us to look unto Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Do you realize that the Savior Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago literally took his place on Calvary and as we said became sin for you and he became sin for me and you know what? When you are dead in your trespasses and sin, you simply need to look unto Jesus and lift your eyes up and see him hanging on Calvary, shedding his perfect precious blood for you and say, oh Jesus, I'm so glad you died in my place. I'm so glad that you gave your best for me. I'm so glad there's an escape from sin and from hell. Thank you, Jesus. I hope you've trusted Christ. And received him into your life because Jesus Christ is the Savior. That serpent on a stick. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, just to make sure that there's no doubt that Jesus Christ intended that that Old Testament story reflect his son Jesus, he said in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 of the book of John, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Man, our sin was judged on Calvary. And as a result, you don't have to pay for it unless you choose to. And you choose to by rejecting the payment God provided in his son, Jesus Christ. Take your Bible now, turn over to the book of Jonah. That's a fun one to find. You may even need to use that thing in the front of your Bible that tells you what page they start on. Because it's tiny. In 
As we look through the word of God, there are so many pictures and types of Jesus Christ pointing to the Savior and ensuring us that we know and understand that Jesus is indeed the Savior, that Christ is the Savior. The lamb, the serpent upon the stick raised up in the wilderness. Notice here in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to see that Jonah ultimately ends up in the belly of a whale. What we're going to recognize and understand through this is that he is a picture of Jesus Christ in the grave, three days, three nights, who rose from the dead. God told Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, verse 2 in chapter 1. That great city and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And God's always concerned about the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And here's a city that's bound in wickedness, overwhelmed by it. And he says, I want my, my prophet to go. Jonah, you go. You cry against it. You tell them to repent. To get right with me. And Jonah says, No, I got other plans, God. I can't stand them Ninevites. And he couldn't. I don't want to go into all the details, but let me tell you what. You want to talk about racial bias. This man was dealing with it. He wouldn't even go to the people because he didn't want them saved. He would prefer them to perish. And so he ran from God. He ran from his responsibility. And in Jonah chapter 1, verse 15, we note that he's on this ship now. He's on the ship, and a great storm arises. And ultimately, they go wake Jonah. By the way, you can be in sin, and you can be running from God and still asleep and resting well. This idea that as a Christian you'll always feel conviction, uh-uh, nah. Now you can grow so hard to God and his word and the things of God that you can be asleep in the bottom of a ship while the rest of the world is going to hell. They had to go wake him up. Hey, wake up, man. Don't you know we're all going to die? Pray to your God. We're praying to our gods. He's like, what? What? <laughs> look at what it says in verse 15 so they took up Jonah eventually and they cast him forth into the sea by the way he told him to do it he knew he was the reason why it was going on sometimes there's storms in your life just because there's storms in your life and other times there's storms in our lives because we created the problem and sometimes God himself even says I'm going to bring a storm in your life to try to get your attention and wake you up we don't preach much like that, but that's a reality of life. We see it in the life of Jonah. So they took up Jonah, verse 15, and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea caused, uh, the, the sea ceased from her raging. Now the Lord, verse 17, had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, very important, three days and three nights. Now let me ask you something. How many days and nights was Jonah in the belly of the whale? Three days and three nights. And I say that for this reason, because ultimately, in the book of Matthew, 
The, oh, oh, by the way, the fish ultimately vomited him out, the Bible says. But in Matthew, I want you to listen to what Jesus had to say about this particular situation. Chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. What sign's that, Jesus? For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you just hear what happened? Now wait, I want you to think about this. When we get to Easter next time, how long is Jesus in the grave? A day and a half maybe? You know what I'm talking about. He was in the grave three days and three nights. You say, why does that matter? Because I don't think any of us would have argued that Jonah was only a day and a half in the belly of the whale. We'd have said he's three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. But may I say that if Jesus said that the only sign you're going to get is that the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights, the sign of the prophet Jonas, then my friend, if Jesus wasn't in the grave three days and three nights, then he is not the Savior. You say, I don't, I don't know where you're getting at. I'm getting at that what Jesus said he always does. And if he said that what Jonas did, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, that's exactly how many days and nights Jesus had to be in the grave, or he was not fulfilling the sign of the Savior who had come. Jesus said, I am not who I claim to be. I am not the Son of God. I am not the Savior of the world. If I'm not in that grave three days and three nights... Because that's the sign. Do you know how long I believe Jesus was in the grave? Three days and three nights, just like the Bible says. A religion can decide and come up with all kind of reasoning and stuff. We believe that he was actually crucified on the Thursday night and he rose again on that. And blah, 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 blah. Three days and three nights! Because that's what God says. By the way, I wasn't there. Were you? So I think I'll believe God's, his account. By the way, the religious leaders of our day have never been there. But God knows. I'll take his word for it. Because otherwise, Jonah isn't a picture of our Savior. And Jesus was just a flim, he was just a, another man, but he isn't. Amen. He's the Savior. Amen. I love so many of the prophecies in Scripture about Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, he says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, the Savior. Paul said, We preach Christ. You may think it's foolishness. You may think it's crazy, 
But we unapologetically preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ the Savior. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We think of the woman at the well. He met her there at the well and he revealed who he was to her. She would go back to her city and begin to share with others that she had met Jesus, the promised one. And in chapter 4, verse 42 of the book of John, they claim and speak, to, they come and say to her eventually after hearing her word, they say, and said, they said unto the woman, now we believe, hold on now, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. What did they learn about Jesus after listening to him? And his word. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Paul preached Christ crucified because Christ is the Savior. There's Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago. The nails in his hands and in his feet. The blood of Jesus Christ pouring from his wounds, hanging between heaven and earth, naked before his creation beaten and marred by the very people he created. And there Jesus hangs. Suffering for all humanity. Fulfilling every prophecy. Accomplishing every law and fulfilling it to a T. And there the perfect man and perfect God hung paying for our sin. Right before he gives up the ghost, before he dies, he says three words that have changed the course of history. It is finished. It is finished. Today, you and I have the great privilege of partaking in what was finished, redemption. We are sinners by birth, by nature. We are destined for a place called hell. We have no hope but to perish without Christ in ourselves. But he paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Can I tell you that Jesus will save you from your sin today? Because Jesus Christ is Savior. He's the Savior. And he came to save you. He came to bear your sin. He came to bear my sin.
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5, we read that. In Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Paul stands before the crowd. And all to, though to the Jews, Christ is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, he's foolishness. Paul stands unapologetically and proclaims, We preach Christ! Christ crucified! Can I tell you why he did? Because there is no other way for you or I to ever escape sin's penalty without the Savior, Jesus Christ. One way, God says, to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. One way to reach those pearly mansions, Jesus is the only way. No other way, no. No other way, no. No other way to go. One way, God says, to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. Can I tell you that's so true still today? Nothing's changed. And that might be a little kid's course that we sing at VBS and in our Sunday schools, but my friend, there's a truth there that rings loud and clear to you and I today. There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. Christ, the Savior. Christ, the crucified. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. In 1 John 5, 11, he says, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It is simple, isn't it? What, yet we complicate it so often, don't we? Right. Well, preacher, I, I'm doing my best. I am, I'm doing my best. I, I believe in God, and, and I was raised in a good home, and, and, and I, 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 I'm a moral person, and I do good things on behalf of others. I'm not a bad person. Uh, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you know there's not a word there that's more than four letters? I don't understand that. I, I don't understand. What did you just read? I don't get it because, I, like I told you, I'm a good person. I, I, don't, do, I, I don't harm people and I, I try to be benevolent and giving and I'm really a good father and a really good mother and, and, and I'm a great grandparent and blah, blah, blah. Wait a second. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you have the Son? So what? I, I, I must, because I'm a good person. No. You know what? Here's a water right here. 
Do you realize that I don't have that water till I take it? You got that water? Nope, but it's right in front of me. You got that water? Yep, got it. I received it. I took it. I accepted it. God's over here trying to hand you and I salvation. You know where, where it comes from? His son. But you have to literally consciously choose him. You have to take him. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you received Christ into your life as Savior? I'm not asking, do you believe in Christ? I'm not asking, do you believe there's a God? I'm not asking, do you believe he created all things? I'm not even asking, are you a good person? I'm asking, have you received Jesus Christ today? Because if you don't, none of that on the cross will make any difference when you stand before God. And he requires you to pay for your sin. The Bible says that one day we'll all stand before God and give an account. And the truth is, the Bible says as well in the book of Revelation that we will be cast into the lake of fire. If your name's not in the book of life, you're cast in the lake of fire. My friend, that is not a place I want anyone to go to, even my worst enemy. And the fact is today is that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the penalty for that sin. You don't have to die and go to hell. You don't have to be separated from God forever. You simply need to trust Christ the Savior. John Newton. He was born in London in July the 24th, 1725. He was the son of a commander of a merchant ship which sailed the Mediterranean. And in in July of 1732, just 13 days after his seventh birthday, John's mama, a saintly woman, she died. She was his friend and his teacher, somebody he truly looked up to, just a little seven-year-old boy course, he took the death of his mother extremely hard. As if, in fact, there's folks that have written biographies that have noted and, and, and reminded us that he took it so bad that he really became embittered toward God, angry at God. It would just be four short years after the death of his mother at the age of 11 that he would go to sea with his father. And he made six voyages with his dad before his dad ultimately retired. In 1744, John was forced into service on a man of war. It was the HMS Harwick. The conditions on board were just unbelievable. They were so intolerable, so much so that he deserted. He literally fled from the ship. He was recaptured. He was publicly flogged, and he was demoted from midshipman to a common seaman. Finally, at his own request, Newton was reassigned to a slave ship. That particular ship took him to the coast of Sierra Leone. And then he became the servant of a slave trader and was terribly abused. Early in 1748, he was rescued by a sea captain who had known his father. John Newton ultimately became the captain of his own slave ship. And what kind of captain was he? Well, biographer Lindsay Terry writes, It is reported that at times he was so wretched that even his crew regarded him as little more than an animal. Once he fell overboard and his ship's crew refused to drop a boat to him, instead they threw a harpoon at him with which they dragged him back into the ship. But may I say that God intervened on behalf of Newton. That God got a hold of Newton. He got his attention through a very violent storm. There was a gale so severe that even the livestock were swept overboard. The men held on to anything they could to keep from going overboard with them. 
And as he attempted to steer the ship through this violent storm, he experienced what he often referred to as great deliverance. He recorded in his journal that when all seemed lost and the ship would surely sink, he cried, Lord, have mercy upon us. Later in his cabin, he reflected on those words that he had said. And he began to understand that God had addressed him, that God had brought the storm into his life with a purpose, and that grace had begun a work in his life. And for the rest of his life, he observed the anniversary of May the 10th, 1748, as the day of his conversion, a day of humiliation in which he subjected his will to a higher power. John Newton is most famously known for a song that he wrote, a song by the name of Amazing Grace. And in that song, there's a verse that says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. On his epitaph, it reads in part, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had, had long labored to destroy. You and I cannot even begin to wrap our minds around how wonderful a Savior he is. There is not one thing you could have ever done that keeps him from loving you and have given his life for you. You say, but I'm not as bad as John Newton. Yeah, you may not be, but can I tell you in the sight of a holy, righteous, perfect God, your sin is so wretched. You're so wicked and sinful in his eyes and so am I. We have no hope without the Savior. I wonder today, you have two cups on your counter. You go to pour water into a cup. You see one cup that has a few specks of like old backwash on it. And then the other is perfectly clean. I wonder today, which one would you pour the water in? Even if there was only one cup on the counter and it was just a bit dirty, I think I would get another cup. How much sin has to be in your life and in mine for God who is perfect and holy to see it as unusable. You know that I can't be used and neither can you. You know that God will never accept you nor will he accept me in our sinful state. We have to come to Jesus the Savior. And he will wash us from our sin and Jesus will deal with us not as sinners but as sons then. Christ the Savior. Paul stood up that day and he proclaimed the truth in city after city after city. 
We preach Christ. And we preach Him crucified and risen again. Because Jesus is still the only way, the truth, and the life. See what He did for you? See what He did for me? If you're lost today, don't turn away from Christ and the cross. Turn to Him. And if you're a child of God today, remember what He did for you. And don't live your life as though it doesn't matter. Because it does. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts this morning as we assimilate what has come forth from the word of God, that you would help us, Lord, to realize that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. Father, today, the lost man or woman, the person who has yet to accept him, must receive him. They must literally take him and accept him today as Savior and Lord. Make a conscious decision to trust Jesus Christ and him alone for their soul salvation. Lord, for the believer today, may we let the love of Christ constrain us. May we exhibit the love that we have for him as a result of his love for us first. He says we love him because he first loved us. Lord, you know that it was you that sought us out. And for that, may we live our lives in gratitude to you. And obedience to you. Father, today in this crowd, there are those that are without Christ. It, it, it's just imperative. Lord, I pray that conviction would be brought to them so strong that they could not help but come to you. They could not resist any longer. Father, do your work now in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed. The music's going to begin playing.